Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Plot Devices. We're here doing things awake, streaming DC fandom on the side. You won't know what we're doing. That's a surprise. My name is Brandon King. I am your host for today alongside one of my hosts, Samantha Ancorvaya. How are you doing, Sam, today? Hey, I'm great, especially because I am back after coming back from Portland. It was a good time until an airline, a certain airline canceled my flight, but I am here and that's all that matters. <laughs> we do not mention name of set technology corporation. Uh, Noah Guzman is also here today. Noah, are you stuck on an airline? I'm not. It's beautiful. It's sunny out here, Brandon and Sam. We're recording episode nine. It feels like we've recorded 10. So this is the, um, this is going to be the 10th episode in my head, but ninth to everybody else. So I'm happy to be here. Let's, let's get going. But number one in your heart. Number one in your heart always. Next week is our decennial. Like if centennial is a hundred, I think decennial is 10. Is it not? Ooh, let's call it. That sounds fancy. I like it. (laughs) Decennial. That's what we'll name it yet next week. It's going to be Last Night in Soho Review and our Dictennial. Okay, make sure I write that down. <laughs> Love it. Last Night in Soho's next week? No, it's actually it actually got pushed to the oh. 29th. I did actually see it two nights ago, and it's, it's very much a Halloween movie. <laughs> oh, I got spooked. I got spooked. I had a, a, a cup of jalapenos with me because I was at Harkins. Shout out to Harkins. And I had a cup of jalapenos with me. The cup was crushed. I, my, <laughs> my knuckles were white. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so scary. But it's also because I'm a wuss. So if people like suspenseful thrillers, you're going to love it. But more on that later. More there's, on that later. There's just someone in the audience who gets hit by a jalapeno. who's like, this is so real. <laughs> Let's start off with our first main topic for today. Uh, as many of you may or may not know, in regards to a lot of the announcement that Disney made back in December, one of which was the confirmation that a Home Alone reboot would in fact become a Disney Plus. Now we have our first look at that and official title, Home Sweet Home Alone. Uh, the film will serve as a reboot slash sequel to Chris Columbus and John Hughes' uh, Home Alone franchise and stars Jojo Rabbit's Archie Yates as Max Mercer, a 10-year-old boy left alone on Christmas when his family accidentally leaves him on their flight to Japan. When a married couple, uh, when a married burglar couple, I should say, played by Ellie Kemper and Rob Delaney, try to steal a precious family heirloom, it's up to Max to stop them through some rather vicious pranks, a la the original films. Dirty Grandpa's Dan Mazur will direct the project, which also stars Keenan Thompson, Ashley B, uh, Pete Holmes, and Devin Ratchery, reprising his role as uh, Kevin McAllister's brother from the original series. Home Sweet Home Alone will premiere exclusively on Disney Plus on November 12th. Noah, I want to get started with you. Uh, this has gotten a lot of negative feedback if you've looked at the like, dislike ratios. I don't know if I'm necessarily one of them, but I want to get your thoughts uh, first and foremost. What is your experience with the Home Alone franchise as a whole? And does this give you hope for something fun and holiday nice? The original, I uh, didn't delve too far into the sequels. I'm not even sure how many there are, uh, but I did enjoy the uh, standalone film with Macaulay Culkin. I love Archie Yates. As soon as I saw the actor, I recognized him from Jojo Rabbit and his scenes with uh, the Jojo Rabbit star are always just adorable and so funny. And just Taika Waititi, you know, brings that hilarity in. Uh, I'll be honest, as, as soon as I watched the trailer, I was excited to see him. I love the uh, reimagining it now in modern times, but I do want to be a hater a little bit and be like, everything was practical in the first home alone. And like, how are they going to get away with like all these absurd antics that the kid is going to be doing against his, uh, against the robbers of the house or the, um, the burglary. Yeah. Like I said, I don't want to be a hater. Like this is clearly going to be a fun family movie and I'm okay. Like just holding it to that, to that on that pedestal. Um, You know, I'm not going to put it any higher than that. I hope it, 
does have a little bit of surprise in there, but I think uh, for the most part, it's going to be a fun holiday movie. I know I'll be watching it with my family and my little bro. Uh, I know it's going to spark some ideas in his head to start pulling some pranks. Uh, looking forward to it. And it's awesome because I feel like with this movie, I, I understand the hate because people absolutely adore the original Home Alone. I do too. I really liked it. And my experience is similar to Noah's. I've only ever seen like the first one and I never really delved into the sequels. But you know what? If it gets more people to investigate the original Home Alone, I think that's worth it. Um, and it's too bad. I saw on uh, on social media that uh, Macaulay uh, Culkin actually confirmed that he also wasn't going to be in this. So I'm sure that probably broke a lot of people's hearts arts in in that way but i think this kind of gives a good avenue for um archie yates to get more uh, not notoriety but just more um visibility in hollywood because he was amazing in jojo rabbit i thought he was really uh, like a scene stealer so i i think it's a really good cast um in terms of like casting archie yates but uh you know a hopeful uh, we'll see how it goes because it, it for me it also seemed a little cheesy it, but it's a family movie. I mean, I'm not necessarily the audience, uh, someone who's 26 with um, no younger kids or anything. So, um, you know, but we'll see. It looks cute. Yeah, the directing choice of Dan Mazur does not enthrall me. I didn't love Dirty Grandpa, and I haven't seen anything else he does. Uh, I will also be honest, before I you know, talk about the actual trailer, like, there's been sort of a trend in family comedies over the last six to seven years where it's been... Let's get, you know, a child actor who's gotten a really good performance under their belt and try and make them, you know, a big wide stream star. And we'll do that by surrounding them with just a ton of SNL alum because we've got, you know, uh, Pete Holmes. We've got uh, Keenan Thompson. We've got Mikey Day, who is also writing the script. And I just keep noticing this thing of just like, oh, just pile them on with, you know, SNL alums. That'll make the movie funny. Um, you got to attract the parents somehow, you know. <laughs> got it. And, and no, not Macaulay Culkin. Uh, Dustin, uh, God, I just had his name in front of me. Uh, Dustin, Ra- Devin Rattray, I should say, who played the brother, like that's what people want to see. That's what'll bring you know the legacy fans. Um, this trailer is fine. It's fine. Like there is a kind of weird viciousness to the original two Home Alone movies. I also like the third movie. I'm the only guy who likes the third movie. Um, there was kind of a viciousness to those original two that made them so memorable. That combination of you know Chris Columbus and John Hughes' sensibilities to them that again made them so iconic. And this just kind of feels blobby, if the word is right. Like, it feels, again, like Noah mentioned, kind of, you know, CGI kind of nonsense. Like, there's something about it that isn't quite clicking in that same way. So I am hopefully optimistic. Maybe families are going to kick out of it. I am not interested in this. We're going to move on to our second major story for today. Will Poulter is joining Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. There have been... There have been rumors about Adam Warlock joining the Marvel Cinematic Universe for years now. I remember when Thor The Dark World came out and they were saying, oh, he's going to be in this. He was not. But we did get a tease to the character at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Now James Gunn has officially taken to his Twitter to confirm, as he, as he phrases it, defeating false rumors. And we love James Gunn for that. Uh, he confirmed the casting as none other than Will Poulter as is going to be Adam Warlock in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Poulter is best known for his roles in Catherine Bigelow's Detroit, the Maze Runner franchise, and can currently be seen on Hulu's Dope Sick, which we're going to talk about later. Uh, in the comics, Adam Warlock is this basically artificially created being to be the perfect, you know, life form, so to speak. There's a lot of convoluted Marvel cosmic nonsense, but he becomes the arch He becomes one of the arch enemies of Thanos at one point. He defeats his evil counterpart, the Magus. That's a whole other weird thing with the Soul Gem and everything. And he even wields the Infinity Gauntlet on a number of occasions. He's a very important character, and fans have been wanting to see him for a while. 
Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is set for release on May 5th, 2023, so it's not going to be for a little while. Sam, I want to get your thoughts first. How familiar are you with the Adam Wallach character with uh, Poulter's tomography? And is this a good choice? Because we've kind of seen people, you know, joking around with this, like, oh, it's the kid from We're the Millers. Yeah, I. so it's funny with Guardians. I, I was actually part of the group that did not love the second movie. That's putting it nicely. <laughs> so I'm hoping that Volume 3 will be more fun, you know? And I actually don't have much familiarity with Adam Warlock at all, because I think out of the three of us, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Brandon has the most experience with comic knowledge. For me, I, I humbly say that I do not know anything. Uh, so I'm excited to see what they'll do with Adam Warlock. But in terms of casting Will Poulter, I think that's really great, because... I, you know, I think most people might recognize him in some other things if they think about it, not just, you know, from where the Millers, uh, like, especially with Midsommar. I mean, he was pretty cool in Midsommar. He was kind of a dope in there, but I mean, he was a good dope. It was, he did the role really well. He knew the character and understood the assignment. So it's like, you know, I'm, I'm hoping with Guardians of the Galaxy 3 that he, um, We'll just bring something special to Adam Warlock, having known nothing about him. But that's why I think this will be really cool. It'll be cool for like standard, uh, normie Marvel fans like me to be able to see a new character and, and see what they could do with it. And especially because I'm hoping that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is like better than the second one. I would like to apologize for my laughing out first earlier. Noah gave us the conspiracy theorist side eye. Will we dare to say we didn't like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3? I was very <laughs> confused. Again, Adam Warlock is a weird character. I encourage some of you to look up some of the videos on him. Like the whole Marvel Cosmic Jim Starlin Roy Thomas thing is a whole entity within itself and you know revolves around universes being destroyed. And, and Adam Warlock is central to that. He's very much kind of a you know methodical character about the meaning of life and existentialism and things like that. But he's also played a huge role in things like Annihilation, where it's just, you know, fight a lot of bugs and things like that. So he's been part of a lot of the intrinsically cosmic things. So it was a no-brainer to be uh, bringing into Guardians. Will Poulter is a talent. I've had my eye on him for uh, maybe since Chronicles of Narnia, actually. Like, I think I I think I saw him in there, and then years later saw him in Maze Runner. I was like, that's the kid from Narnia. Okay. Um, and he's That's so, a deep cut to remember him from Narnia. <laughs> I, I was a Narnia nerd as a kid. That's going to be in my tombstone. I was a Narnia nerd. Um, but no, like, he's phenomenal in Detroit. Like, not enough people saw that. And I think he is one of the saving graces of a movie that can be a bit muddled, but he's so good in it. Um, and in Dopesick, we're going to talk about him later, but he is, he's so good in that. He's, he's just proving himself to be such a versatile talent. Okay. He doesn't, you know, look like, you know, Alexander Skarsgård, which is like how a lot of people envision the character to look like, but I cannot wait to see this. Uh, Noah, are you a Narnia super fan? And if not, what do you still think about Poulter joining Guardians 3? The guy from We're the Millers, is, is that the guy we're talking about? <laughs> that is in fact the guy we're talking um. about. I, I more so remember him from uh, Midsummer, which I think was the last thing I've seen him in. And uh, I wouldn't call myself like, you know, an outright fan of his. Uh, I, I don't, I don't dislike him at all. I think that reactions to castings can sometimes be like, I mean, they're always premature, right? Like we always come out the gate, like either like, this is such a bold move or we're like, ah, oh, like could have been someone else more like groundbreaking. Uh, I feel like more on the latter side, like, yeah, I, I did kind of want to see like the Adam Warlock character is supposed to be like this epitome of like perfection. And, and I thought like, oh, um, like, let's see what interesting choice this becomes because it was kind of forgotten on the MCU timeline. This happened at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Um, we have one member of the golden, um, species of, you know, alien who are like, you know, rise Adam or like this is supposed to be the, the, the weapon of the people who are uh, all, 
Adonis just in gold, uh, the sovereign, you know, this casting, I was happy to find out about it throughout the week. And I'm just like, okay, let's see what this becomes because I have more questions about the placement of guardians three in the timeline of everything, because I know we're getting a holiday special. Um, I previously thought that the third guardians was going to take place during that long gap between two and infinity war. Um, but I think that's has since been disproven. Like now I think James Gunn uh, reiterated that this is going to take place after Avengers three and four. So who's that Gamora going to be? What is Groot's, you know, aging process going to look like when we finally see him again? And how is Will Poulter going to play off of everybody? You know, James Gunn, he, he has uh talent working with all these variety of characters, uh, Let's see how Adam Warlock fits in. I totally agree. Let's move on to our third main topic for today, uh, our final main topic, I should say. Millicent Simmons is going to be the first deaf actress to play Helen Keller in the upcoming uh, Student and Teacher Project. Uh, I believe, uh, I'm forgetting the distributor's name, but I will find it in just a moment. But we know uh, recently from an article from Variety, Millicent Simmons, who is best known for her work in Wonderstruck, she was in both of the Quiet Place movies as uh, John Krasinski's daughter, she will be the first deaf actress to play the legendary author and activist Helen Keller, who, of course, was blind and deaf from an early age. She joins Student and Teacher, the newest project from Still Alice director Wash Westmerland. Uh, in one of his solo uh, directorial efforts, he's worked with uh, his his late husband, Rachel Glatzer, for a number of years before he passed away. This is one of his solo projects. Uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's Rachel Brosnahan will portray Keller's teacher, uh, Ann Sullivan, with the film set to tackle the years after Sullivan's legendary teaching lessons, this has been the subject of a lot of stories before, including 1962's The Miracle Worker, which earned hearing actress Patty Duke a Best, a a Best Actress Oscar. No release date has been set, but principal photography is set to begin next summer. Sam, I want to get started with you. Uh, Millicent Simmons, who has been another one of these child actors that we've had our eye on for a while, whether it's, you know, Wonderstruck or Quiet Place or everything like that. How important is this from a representation point of view? And are you excited for a story to tackle Helen Keller's story that isn't, you know, just the one that we know? No, I'm absolutely excited for this. And I'm so happy for Millicent Simmons because I think that she also deserves more roles similar to like Archie Yates in that they're they're up and coming actors. And I think that they're really it's really exciting that they're getting these opportunities and especially for Helen Keller. Like I'm sure that for Millicent, this is probably a very personal movie. And, uh, you know, I just think that she is this really um, good representation for other people to show like, you know, that again representation matters and and you you know like she's representing other people within her community in this and it'll it'll be really good for her so i'm excited for it and i think also rachel brosnahan is also a really great cast too to play um uh, miss sullivan so this will this will be really cool i'm excited about it and i'm definitely going to be keeping my eyes on the project so how about you noah we focus on characters who have a disability there are actors there are talented uh people out there who can be part of the projects who can portray that disability without being um, disingenuine, or I think that that's, I meant without being ingenuine. And so I'm, I'm so happy for Millicent Simmons. I love seeing her uh, kind of become more of the main character in a quiet place too. And having this like historical, you know, genre going to be uh, under her belt. Uh, it's going to show her versatility I think that it's not the only character that Millicent Simmons can be casted for. So uh, after this project, yeah, it's just going to you know widen the table of what Millicent Simmons can approach and and what hopefully um, Hollywood directors are going to be uh, seeking her for. Totally, and I, I have not seen the Quiet Place movies because I am a wimp, but I did see Wonderstruck, and it is not a great movie, 
she is great in it. Uh, you cannot take your eyes off her. She has such a presence about her. And I've heard the exact same thing about the Quiet Place movies. I also want to point out just kind of the expanded coverage that we have been getting of deaf and hard of hearing performers in just the last number of years, whether it's, you know, uh, Quiet Place or whether it's Coda or whether it's Eternals coming up with uh, Lauren Ridloff, Sound of Metal. Like we are starting to get stories that are not only told by, you know, hard of hearing and deaf actors, but we are getting stories that show the nuance and humanity of those characters as well. And Helen Keller... For a long, I think I think people did just look to the miracle worker for that uh, for that effect, and it it is an inspiring story. Like if you watch that movie, it does what it needs to do. But there is a nuance that is lost to it of just oh, you know, Helen Keller was not this helpless person. She was a woman who who had a life and who had activism behind her. And I hope that this movie can tackle those things with more nuance. I have all the faith in the world in Watch Berlin. I loved Still Alice. I think he can absolutely tackle the kind of mother daughter symmetry that this movie needs to tackle. Again, this sounds really interesting. I'm glad to see more, you know, hard of hearing and deaf performers getting these shots like this. So we'll see. And we actually round up our news with our quick hit section. So this is going to be uh, the period where we're all just getting to touch on those topics that we did not uh, get to dive deep into today. We all have one minute. I don't mind taking the lead on this. So I can go By ahead and start and begin. So my quick hit is... uh all Mummy and Rachel Wise fans in the uh, listening booths, please stand up and turn your volume up because she's returning to the screen with an adaptation of the suspense novel titled A Seance on a wet afternoon uh, the actress will play a, a medium who kidnaps a young girl with her husband in an effort to prove her renown as a medium and i think things go awry um it's a, it's based on a novel like i said um and it earned the original um, adaptation of this book it earned the lead actress an academy award nomination so let's see if it could do the same thing for rachel weiss uh it's not surprising to hear her name when the award season comes around because she is so amazing i love her in the favorite and we got that scream five trailer any horror fans uh are you eagerly awaiting it we want to know please let us know at plot devices pod that's all yeah i'm a little mad that we didn't get the scream trailer but we will try and get to that at you know some point when it comes out sam over to you for your quick hit all right so in three two one so my quick hit is actually about a little special that aired on abc and is now streaming on hulu if you're curious but it's called a night in the academy museum and so i've actually been really excited and had my eyes on the academy awards museum in california since they announced it was going to be a thing because if you know me i'm a huge fan of the academy awards and the oscars and everything like that i just i always have the ballots ready and i host a party too so it's a good time um but in general i just thought it was really cool it was a really neat special if you're curious to see a little bit about the museum um there are some people who show up in it like laura dern and, and tom hanks and annette benning and so many other people but it's just a, a nice little homage to movies and and the academy awards and so i think you know i i can't wait till i could go out there and see it myself the museum but otherwise i just thought it was kind of a neat thing and wanted to give it a shout out if you're curious to check it out um i am going to get to mine as soon as i get the timer okay in three two so, as we talked about Star Wars Visions a couple of weeks ago, God, it only feels like yesterday, uh, we all kind of had the opinion in our head of like, oh, you know, Lucasfilm said this is alone. We have to treat this as alone. It's not canon. Get that out of your nerd brains. Well, there is now just the slightest bit of hope that some of it could become canon. Uh, in an interview with Oricon, which is a, a Japanese website, uh, Kenji Kameyama, who directed the short The Ninth Jedi, revealed that not only would he like to see more of his story develop, but he actually has the remaining story mapped up for that world. Uh, translated from Japanese, this is a quote from uh, Kameyama when he was asked if he would like to develop his story more. Quote, if that is possible, I would definitely like to try it. And I think the story is complete enough to make a feature film. 
Uh, Lucasfilm, again, has been fairly adamant about Visions being outside of canon, but if Legends has been any indication, uh, they are not shy, you know, they as in Dave Filoni and Pablo Hidalgo and everyone, they are not shy about cherry-picking things from Legends and putting them into canon. Personally, I think The Last Jedi and Twins is probably the one that has the most potential to be drawn into long-term canon stories. I would love to see this, whether Legends or not. Time. And there you have it, everybody. We got our quick hit section and news was short today. So we're diving into those new releases uh, this weekend, starting with The Last Duel. Then we're talking Halloween Kills. Uh, following that is Mass. And to wrap, we're going to be talking The Velvet Underground. All right. We don't actually have a movie that all of us can uh, share a discussion on today. So we're going to be passing the, the mic back and forth. Uh, Brandon, why don't you start us off and talk to us about Jodie Comer and others in The Last Duel? The literal queen in this, Jodie Comer. Um, and yeah, we were all completely scattered this week, but we have a lot of reviews. Uh, starting with, of course, The Last Duel. This is Ridley Scott's newest project uh, starring Jodie Comer, uh, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Adam Driver. Affleck and Damon wrote the script alongside uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? as Nicole Huff Center. It is based on, I keep forgetting the name of the novel, The Last Duel, A True Story of Trial by Combat in Medieval France by Eric Yeager, which tells the story of the last authorized duel in medieval France. Basically, we, uh, we visit France in the late 1300s, we uh, we meet Marguerite de Carouge, who is played by uh, Jodie Comer. She is a noblewoman, or the daughter of a noblewoman, I should say, who gets arranged, essentially it's an arranged marriage, to uh, Jean de Carouge, who is played by Matt Damon. In all of his mullet and goatee glory, there's a lot of weird facial hair in this. They have a, essentially arranged marriage. Uh, is mostly for land deals. Matt Damon's character is best friends with, uh, uh, with Jacques Degree, who is played by Adam Driver, who is also a nobleman who, you know, is best friends with this, uh, Viscount played by Ben Affleck in one of his more comedic roles. Anyway, the longest short of the story is, uh, Marguerite, Jodie Comer's character, accuses Adam Driver's character of raping her, which sets off a whole firestorm of the kingdom. You know, should she be believed? Why should she be believed? Matt Damon's character has to kind of struggle with his own pride and things like that. Uh, Adam Driver's character is, of course, denying the whole thing. He is supported, of course, by the clergy, which is led by Ben Affleck's character. And the whole movie is set up in this three-act structure. So you see Matt Damon's side of the story. You see Adam Driver's side of the story. And then finally, you see Jodie Comer's, much akin to uh, Akira Kurosawa's uh, Rashomon, which a lot of critics have been pointing out to. I, of course, didn't because I'm an idiot. And then I went back and looked at it and it was like, yep, this is exactly Rashomon. It's just, you know, in medieval Europe. As someone who has been mixed on Ridley Scott, I think he's a filmmaker with a ton of ambition. You know, he has all the legacy in the world between Alien and Blade Runner. And, you know, you could list his achievements, you know, on two hands if he had to. And I always enjoy seeing him go more bombastic with everything, whether it's, you know, Gladiator. I didn't like Exodus Gods and Kings, but I appreciated the scope of it. And this kind of goes to that credit as well. Like, the battle scenes, which isn't just the last duel that we do get in the movie, but there's actual, like, you know, battle scenes in Normandy where you see, you know, Damon and Driver leading hordes of Frenchmen, I should say. And it is glorious. It's brutal. Like, the blood is there, and it's lit really well, courtesy of, uh, of Darius Wolski, who's the cinematographer on this. And the story itself is framed really well. Like, Scott takes full advantage of the three-act structure. Uh, and you can kind of tell who writes who. You can tell that Matt Damon very clearly writes for himself. Uh, ben Affleck writes for the Adam Driver character, who is kind of a placeholder for himself. And then Jodie Comer is written by Nicole Hall Center, who prides more of, you know, a female perspective on that. And to me, that is the part where it works. I think when you finally see how everything ties together as Jodie Comer's character comes into play, she is a character who is very much doing what she can. Like at this time, there's literally plot devices eh, about, you know, how she should be believed or not, or why she should be believed by whether it's a clergy or, you know, traditional science at the time. Like there is a whole plot point about, oh, she can't get pregnant and she's raped. Like that's a whole plot point in the court drama and things like that. 
And it leads to this whole aura of fury about the movie. This should be a no-brainer case. Like, Jean Degree is clearly a guy with a lot of issues, with a lot of, you know, mixed sentimentality towards Joni Comer's character. And it's very disgusting. But you look at that, and while Scott is essentially trying to make you look at, oh, look how contemporary this is, it's also meant to be a double standard of how regressive society has become and how nowadays this thing could still happen in certain parts of the world. And it works on that level. At the end of the day, it is still, you know, a subject matter about a woman being raped and you are shown it brutally twice. It's not great. Um, it, the fact that we have to endure that multiple times, I really don't think works. And I think will vary for a lot of audiences. And personally, it, you know, the pacing is way too long. It's you know, almost two and a half hours and it feels like it uh, until we get to the duel, which, again, is spectacle. And it is it is a really good you know closure for the characters, for the three main characters of the movie. At the end of the day, it's good. I admire what it's doing, but it is not going to work for everyone. It certainly didn't work a ton for me. Overall, I'm giving this a very strong seven and a half. It's incredibly admirable. Jodie Comer steals the show when she is eventually given the spotlight, but it takes way too long to do so, even if I understand where the movie is going from from that. So see it if you can. It might get some awards buzz, especially for Comer and the cinematography, but otherwise I've, I've seen better from Scott without this. So we're going to move on to a movie that is supposedly expanding. I haven't been able to find it. Maybe you can shed some light on this. Uh, Mass starring Jason Isaacs. Tell us about this. It's a dark movie. Yeah, absolutely. So this is actually directed and written by Fran Kranz. So this is actually his uh, directorial debut. What a hot directorial debut it is, too, because it really it really is a heavy subject matter. But it's it's an amazing movie. I think it's the best acting that you'll see all year, to be honest. And I know that's very it's a very high pedestal to put it on. So like Brandon kind of teased, it does star Jason Isaacs, Reed Burney, and Dowd and Martha Plimpton. And all four of these actors are phenomenal. Like they are equally pulling their own weight. And honestly, none outshines the other. And it's like I keep mentioning it, it, they're amazing in this movie. And so uh, the movie is called Mass. So it is a movie that is kind of an indie movie that is distributed by Bleecker Street. And it is on limited release for now in theaters, but then it's supposedly also coming out widely, um, you know, down the line. And it should be wide released by October 29th. At least that's what I'm come to understood. But Mass is a drama that is primarily about those four actors that I mentioned. And they each play um, two sets of parents. So uh, Martha Plimpton and Jason Isaacs are one set of parents named Gail and Jay. And Reed Burney and Ann Dowd are another set of parents named Richard and Linda. And basically, they've come together in this church. It's an Episcopalian church where they're airing out their grievances and they are trying to move forward six years after a tragedy took um, both of their son's lives. And it's pretty serious, too, because um, Jason Isaacs and Martha's um, Martha Plimpton's son plays a victim. Well, he, he was a victim in this tragedy. And um, Anne Dowd and Reed Burney's son um, was actually the perpetrator in this tragedy. So it's about a school shooting and um, their sons were lost in the school shooting and um, their son was the shooter. So that's kind of the interesting premise there. It really hooks a lot of people from the beginning. If you watch the trailer, it is extremely deep. And just from hearing the subject matter, it is extremely heavy. But the thing about this movie is it's it's so heavy, but it's really essential to see because they do a great job of addressing questions that people likely have when unfortunately things like this happen in real life. So there's even this really one great scene between Richard and Linda, and they're talking about like what could have changed. They were wondering 
what exactly caused their son to plan this tragedy. And uh, they were talking about how moving might have been a factor. And so Richard um, does a great job of trying to defend his decision. Like, oh, yeah, we moved. It was a good neighborhood. And then Linda's like, sure, it was good. But it, he couldn't be outdoors as much as he wanted. He loved the outdoors. So that that was a scene where they almost seemed to be like dancing around each other verbally. And it was just engaging to watch. And that's how the entire movie felt to me that it was just extremely engaging and each of the actors played off of each other well. And so unfortunately this movie is absolutely something that it could have been released in the last 10, 15 years. And unfortunately would be very relevant to the times. And I think that's why this movie does a great job of, you know, honing in on your emotions that are already preconceived on the idea of school shootings and how that affects families. Um, so, you know, the, I think that the movie is really well done. The story structure is great. There were a couple times where the cinematography didn't really hit right for me. Like there was this one scene when um, Richard and Linda first show up to the church. And to me, it's like the the weirdest shot ever. And I even said out loud, why, why was that there? Um, upon thinking about it, you know, backing up, I did see that, you know, they, they kind of lived in hiding because their son was the shooter. So it's just like, maybe that was kind of the sign of them hiding in their life. And so that shot where they were introduced, it wasn't very clear. Um, okay. I get it, but I just think it could have been executed a little better. Uh, otherwise overall with this, this movie, it's really phenomenal and I highly recommend you see it. So, uh, like I mentioned, it'll be wide released, uh, by October 29th. That's when it's set, but otherwise it's in select theaters right now. And I definitely recommend you don't sleep on it. I, I think in my review with Odyssey online, I gave it like a solid nine and it's because of that minor, like a few minor, um, questionable cinematography choices, but otherwise totally, totally recommend it. Of the four, who do you think has the best awards chance? It's a really great question. And to be honest, I would say Martha Plimpton. And I think it's just because a lot of people know of her through like these comedic roles, the roles that are a little more lighthearted than this. And to see her do a drama is honestly refreshing for a change. And so I feel like because of those drastic um, ways she's represented in Hollywood, I think that could really give her a great chance. But to be honest, all four of them deserve something. And even I would imagine Fran Kranz could also deserve some kind of writing award too, because this, this movie is phenomenal, but I am very, very worried that this movie isn't going to be campaigned as hard and that it's going to be slept on by the Academy. Kind of like my gripe last year with peanut butter Falcon. I'm, I'm worried that it's going to be similar where a lot of people aren't going to pay attention to it, but here's hoping, you know, <laughs> I hope it is. I have heard all the unanimous praise on, on top of yours, and your review is fantastic, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And so, yeah, like, I'm excited. We'll see what happens there. But then, um, in, a, in a more lighthearted note, I guess, or a scarier note, I'd really love to hear about uh, Noah's next review here, too. So we've got Halloween Kills, which I hear is a little interesting. So I can't wait to hear Noah's review. Um, interesting is in bad, very bad. So, <laughs> so I'll, Noah, I'll leave it to you. Thank you, Sam. Let's talk. Let's talk Halloween Kills. It was released this past Friday. He does. End of the story. That's it. Thank you for coming to my review. Hey, good review. Yes, he does. Making okay. history. <laughs> Let me dive into this for you. We got Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, Andy Matishak, Anthony Michael Hall are just a few of the actors that I want to make mention of because of their performances in the movie. Uh, they were fun to pay attention to. I watched it Thursday night with a friend who has seen a lot of the franchise. And as soon as the movie ended, he turns to me and he goes, it was bad, but I'm not disappointed. 
Okay. So I'll get, I'll get more of uh, my spiel later. So let me tell you about the story. The story follows Laurie Strode and company immediately after the events uh, at the end of the 2018 Halloween reboot, where the Strodes, Laurie, her daughter, Karen, and granddaughter, Allison are being whisked away in the bed of a truck, leaving Michael to burn to death in a basement. Well, if that were truly the case, we wouldn't really have a movie or a sequel or a trilogy, would we? Uh, When Michael inevitably escapes, the community at large is still celebrating Halloween night. This is, you know, the two night event. Halloween is Halloween and then Halloween kills is is pretty much the same night. Um, So the community at large is still celebrating Halloween. And when word spreads that Michael is out killing, they decide to rally together and finally put evil to rest. It is a bloody slasher mess of one-liners that make your eyes roll so far back in your head. Anytime a character gives their hero one line, I'm like, immediate decapitation. Like, where, where is this going for you? I don't have hopes for you anymore. Your chances of survival are immediately deep in the ground as soon as you open your mouth uh, in a Halloween movie. So the tagline of this movie is, evil dies tonight. I think that they they wanted to work that in so that every character that you have on screen, at least once they say evil dies tonight, some characters three or four times, probably 80,000 times in, in the movie, because all I hear throughout the movie is evil dies tonight, evil dies tonight, evil dies tonight. And I go, okay, Got it. Got it. You know, good luck. Have fun. I was expecting, you know, an innovative and cool spin to the Laurie Strode story as the final girl versus the shape, the undying boogeyman, Michael Myers. But I felt it dropped the ball. And I was a fan of the original. I I saw it back when it uh, released in 2018. And I was so ready for that, for the badass Laurie Strode. Now she's a hermit and she has this bunker of sorts. She's living in a fortress that is everything anti-Michael. And it only takes the first movie for him to, you know, force her in a situation where I think she has to leave. I don't even I can't remember if they have a showdown at the um, at her original fortress. Um, But anyways, this is kind of like a cat and mouse story, but uh, really focusing on the community of Hayden Field and all of their efforts to track down Michael, uh, who is wandering around the neighborhood. He only walks. Um, He's wandering around the neighborhood, committing his killings. and they're trying to figure out where he's going to end up next. There's these, all these different troops that are out. Uh, this, this movie does bring back some characters uh, from the original Halloween films. Part of this community effort is led by the original survivors just telling their story of this is how Michael impacted my life. And now, you know, we're going to go get him tonight. Evil dies tonight. And, you know, like it's hammered into you. Uh, so kind of, kind of cat and mouse. Um, it's the masses. And then the masses are also like, fighting against their own mindsets, like they're fighting against their own cause because they, they become like vigilantes and they're starting to, uh, you know, direct their anger, their, all of their hatred of Michael to any target that they can. And so that even has like this whole subplot where there's another escaped uh, mental patient from where Michael was staying in the first film. And, uh, he ends up getting like, he, he ends up receiving a lot of that, uh, a lot of that motivation. And so, it, it, it really asks the question of like what it means to reach your end when you have all this like manifestation of hate just, just that's just boiling until you can catch the killer. Um, it gets real campy and funny at times, but then we're supposed to be scared and it's kind of the same scares. Like, oh my gosh, is Michael in the darkest part of this room? Breather. He's not. Boom. He is psycho. 
like knife to the throat. Um, so after the Halloween reboot, like I said, in 2018, I was ready for that, like the continuation of the story, but Laurie really plays like a, like a small figure in this film, um, which was unfortunate to say, because I really wanted that, you know, I wanted it to keep going. I wanted her to get to the hospital in the first act. I kind of wanted them to meet up in the second and then have like some kind of showdown in the third. Like we're really expecting a trilogy here. So where's, where's the momentum? Like what's going on? Because the whole story really takes, really takes hold around the fact that Michael is back and he's still killing. And while the kills are great and, you know, fun to watch, you know, they're, they're funny. Even at times I was laughing with my friends in the audience. Uh, it didn't really feel like an OMG. This is part two. It felt like I'm a big gamer. So this felt not like a sequel video game. It felt like a DLC where, which is downloadable content where you get to see and play as Michael, as he goes around and kills some more members of the neighborhood. I don't have much more to say on that. So I'm going to give my star rating. Uh, it's a solid six out of 10 for me. Uh, this time of year, you do want to indulge in those creepy, you know, eerie vibes and watching Halloween kills um, is excellent to do. I don't recommend, I, I, I wouldn't place my recommendation on the theater. It is streaming on Peacock and I'll probably go back and rewatch it just to, you know, maybe give myself a second opinion. But um, for anybody out there, you know, you can stream it on Peacock with ads. I'm still going to keep my eye on the third because I need to see how this all wraps up. But this kind of like, it slowed the roll for me. You know, I'm not right behind it anymore. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to the next release. We got Brandon coming back to us. Uh, Brandon, what can you share about the Velvet Underground on Apple TV? Yeah, so this is uh, the newest music documentary we're getting this year. We've gotten a couple of great ones between Summer of Soul, Sparks Brothers, now this. Uh, this is directed by Todd Haynes, who, of course, you might know from actually tying everything together, Wonderstruck with uh, Melissa Simmons. So it ties everything together with that. Uh, also, uh, I'm Not Here, Carol, he's done a bunch of things like that. This is his first major documentary. It, of course, tells the story of the Velvet Underground Band, which, for those of you who somehow don't know, they were a group from New York. They formed a kind of like the bohemian, you know, 42nd Street movement of artists that were going on at that time, which was really experimental, really avant-garde, led by vocalist guitarist Lou Reed, uh, guitarist bassist uh, Sterling Morrison, uh, multi-instrumentalist and composer uh, John Cale, and drummer percussionist uh, Maureen Mo Tucker. Uh, they were heavily affiliated with Andy Warhol. Uh, Nico, who was a uh, German singer at the time, she uh, appeared on their first album, which launched them into kind of cult status superstardom. And they essentially became part of, you know, it's not a actual term. I'm making this up. The Warhol verse, you know, Andy Warhol's weird, like multimedia art experiments. And Todd Haynes kind of delves into that history. And it is much less a traditional, you know, behind the music style documentary as it is. I, I describe it as almost like a fever dream where, where Todd Haynes and his editors, uh, Afonso uh, Goncalves and uh, Adam Kernitz, they kind of edit and structure the movie in such a way that it feels like someone recollecting this as like a as like a almost weird campfire story but with hallucinogenic so it's weird um and it totally works like you'll see you'll see scenes where like lou reed or archival footage of lou reed because he passed away in 2013 where like there will be footage of lou reed in kind of a warhol style setup and directly next to him is you know footage from you know a live gig or from you know wandering about new york and then you'll see you know other scenes of you know flashing lights adjacent to you know scenes of mo tucker interviews and uh, there are also plenty of special guests in here uh jackson brown pops up in this uh john waters pops up in this uh lamond who is a incredibly influential uh, avant-garde and drone musician pops up in this and the whole movie 
Todd Haynes is a filmmaker who, you know, I have very little experience with. I love I'm Not There, but that is basically the extent of my knowledge with him, aside from uh, Wonderstruck. But one thing that he loves in his movies is the past. He loves looking on, you know, the merits of the past and seeing, you know, how time moves forward with those things. And you get the vibe from The Velvet Underground that this is much less a story of The Velvet Underground as it is a portrait of a very active, very creative scene of the 60s that is framed within these four, you know, characters. And specifically John Cale, who kind of becomes, because he's one of the, he's one of the surviving members, he's one of the most prominent interviews, he becomes kind of the central point of this. Like, you get an insight into, you know, the mind of, like, where drone music started and where, you know, his sense of, like, ambient nature comes from. And his story is actually fascinating in its own right. But once you get into, you know, uh, once you get into the imperfections of it, that's where I think it really begins to shine. Like, this movie is not afraid to mention, like, yeah, Lou Reed was, you know, a genius, but he's also kind of a jerk who didn't like being around people, like, uh, around certain social scenes, which I totally related to, by the way. And then you get, you know, Mo Tucker, who, you know, she was one of the only female drummers at the time, but she was very androgynous. She didn't come across a lot of sexism because she kind of hit it sort of thing. That also ties into the Warhol camp. I appreciate that this movie goes into, you know, the Warhol verse, so to speak, again, where it's like, no, like, Andy Warhol was an important creative force. But let's not mince words. The dude was kind of sexist. He was painting women as much more figures and objects, which is why Nico was brought into the band in the first place. She was brought in not because she could sing, but because she was like this icy European blonde who could go next to the, you know, these guys in all black. And it makes sort of this really weird tangent, uh, this, weird, this weird sort of tangent to where the band wanted to go versus where, you know, their, their sort of handlers were taking them. And it goes towards, you know, kind of point like that. End of the day, though, it is a movie that is reflective, that is hard to access. Like, it's not an easy watch, even though it's only about, you know, an hour 30, hour 40. But I found myself really getting invested in this. I found myself really appreciating it on an artistic level. Todd Haynes, as a director, I think has a lot of tricks for this about how to get you invested beyond just the weirdness of the music. You know, it's obviously full of, you know, Velvet Underground and the Reed songs, but it's also full of, like, you know, weird drone pieces and, you know, 60s, you know, proto-pop and things like that, because you start to see the evolution of where a band like this could go and, you know, sort of a through line of, like, them to 80s New Wave. You know, I don't think it's as widely knowledgeable as something like Summer of Soul was or as absolutely joyous as the Sparks Brothers was, but it is a movie that knows what it is, and I really kind of appreciated it for it. Uh, overall, it's a very strong eight and a half out of 10. That actually might get risen if I go and rewatch it. Again, I was just so thoroughly impressed by what it was doing. And if you're a fan of music documentaries but are getting tired of the sort of, you know, behind the music structure of it all, this might actually be for you, whether you know the Velvet Underground or not. Not bad. Now I got to check it out now because I don't know why it wasn't really on my radar. I mean, even before we recorded, I was just like, oh, I don't know why I forgot about Velvet Underground. So yeah, after hearing your take on it, I'm, I'm curious about it. I did too. And I think there's the small point of like Apple TV promotes the hell out of their shows, not so much out of their movies. Well, that can wrap our movie review section. Uh, Sam, we missed you last week. We were talking all TV. We talked about that finale for what if, uh, of course, now entering our TV stream wars. Well, what are we going to call this segment? That's the name of the segment. T- tell us your initial reactions to that finale, because we, that's all we talked about uh, from last week. No, absolutely. Thank you. No. And I missed you guys too. So I, I, it was fun. I was watching the episode on my own just to catch up, see if you guys talked like mad trash about me, uh, but no, it, it was a good episode. So great job guys. Um, so with my take on the finale for what if I, I thought it was really fun. It, it kind of brought up the same emotions where you're like, ah, 
it's all of them together. They're all combining their universes together. And it's this one grand finale of all stars. And I just found that really cool. I don't know why I should have seen that coming, but I didn't see it coming. And so it was just kind of cool to see all of these characters in each of their own universes come together again. Um, And I don't need to recap any of that since you were there uh, last week and talked about it, but I thought overall it was just really, really well done. And it was really cool to see each of those characters interact with one another and especially to see what happened with that universe's Black Widow. I found that so satisfying. That ending was so satisfying to see where she ended up. And it's, you know, I I think it really sets up a lot for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It could it could potentially mean that, you know, like I know that supposedly these aren't canon. They could say that, but I feel like they could backtrack on it. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But like I actually have been kind of out of touch because I was away and out of town. Um, I know that there were some announcements with like season two and then that, that was happening, but I don't, I personally don't know anything about the plot for that. So um, I plan on kind of going in as blind as I can, just because looking back, I anticipated a lot of those episodes and I kind of wish they were surprises um, because I, I, you know, I purposely avoided the finale promotions for this reason. Um, So, you know, I I thought it was really fun and overall it really wrapped the first season very, very well. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Um, Obviously our lists are completely fluid and we're going to have different picks for this, but this is going to be very fun. So let's pop into it. We'll give our final quick thoughts on season one as a whole and then our final rankings so we can move into, you know, our longer TV pieces. For me, What If has been, you know, the experiments of experiments for the MCU. I've, again, been ecstatic about this since day one. It did not live up to all of my expectations. I think the series has problems that I hope are resolved in season two. Longer episodes. But I think for what it does, the creativity, the voice cast, the animation, which really grew on me, I'm really excited to see where it goes next. I'm really happy to have seen where it has gone this season. As for my final ranking, here it is. Number nine, Captain Carter. Number eight, Murder Mystery. Number seven, Thor is an Only Child. Uh, number six, Zombies. Number five, Killmonger Becomes Black Panther. Number four, Guardians of the Multiverse, a.k.a. the finale. Number three, T'Challa as Star-Lord. It went, out, it went off at number one. Yep, it finally happened. Number two, Ultron Infinity. And at number one, after I rewatched it, Strange Supreme is my number one. It, I think this is the best of the nine. So that is my ranking. Noah, over to you. Uh, thoughts on What If Season 1 and your ranking? My thoughts on what if season one is please keep that art style. It's so, um, it's so perfect for these stories that are, um, when, when told like to the extremes, like when we get that, um, tentacle strange or we get like all those huge, uh, wasp zombies or not wasp, but like, yeah, it was wasp who was a giant zombie at the very end. Spoiler. Um, it's just, it's so perfect. And every time I watch it, I just feel like joy because the, the superheroes just look straight out of a comic book. And, and I love that. So jumping to my rankings, I'm going to go, uh, we're going nine to one. So nine is losing mightiest heroes. You know, what if earth lost its mightiest heroes? Number eight, Thor is an only child. Number seven, Killmonger saved, Killmonger saves Iron Man. Uh, number six, T'Challa as Star-Lord. Number five, Peggy as Captain Carter. Number four, what if the Watcher broke his oath? Guardians of the Multiverse. Um, number three, what if Ultron won? And my top two taking second place is Doctor Strange losing his heart. And I actually went back and I admire that Zombies episode so much. I love all the characters. I love how uh, that story uh, includes everybody that they use. Um and so Zombies is my number one for What If. I think that, th- that that version of all these characters is so fun and different. And that's why I put it at number one. 
my rankings um ninth is guardians i'm sorry brandon uh, ninth is guardians of the universe um uh eighth is zombies seventh is carter's episode six is the one where everyone dies and explodes and stuff like that um five is ultron ultron wins uh four is thor's episode that totally rhymes didn't didn't plan that um three three is the finale that was up there my top three two is the killmonger episode and one is that doctor strange episode that one for some reason just really hit a core with me and i'm probably biased just because i love benedict cumberbatch but it, there was just something about seeing that character who we know is you know pretty pretty stoic he's pretty serious and um kind of kind of a jerk it was kind of nice to see a sensitive side of that character in a different universe um and it all completely go to poop so yeah i i thought that was just a really engaging episode uh, and that one's still my by far my favorite your murder mystery is higher than i expected like you're probably the most positive out of all of us on it but I think it's because I didn't expect Hank Pym to be the one who was behind all of those murders. You know, it was just something that I didn't see. Maybe I should have seen, but it was a big surprise for me. And you see Earth's Mightiest Heroes just get knocked off one by one. Boom, boom. And I just found that so interesting. And I think that's why I've been pretty positive about the episode overall. One note I wanted to mention was Doctor Strange losing his heart instead of his hands is such such an amazing episode because it really does answer the question that a lot of audiences probably have, which is like this, this character, Stephen Strange, Dr. Dr. Strange, if he's so powerful, like what can he really achieve or like, what are his limits? And I really like that. We got to see that with him losing his heart, but the complete opposite of the extreme that we expect, like there are some times I think in the MCU where we ask ourselves, well, can't Dr. Strange like intervene or can't he, you know, do something. And it's the answer is yes, he can, but you know, there are limits to what he extends himself to. And I think the exploration of that in him losing his heart, uh, just such, such a moment. I I really do uh, adore that episode. That's why it's too. Um, yeah, that and keeps reminding us, too, of how important Strange really is. I mean, I feel like I, I don't know how other people felt about this, but for me, I didn't really expect Doctor Strange to have as big an influence as he does now when his standalone movie came out. So uh, I just think it's really interesting. And Marvel keeps reminding us, oh, yeah, this guy is a, a very, very powerful sorcerer. Like, <laughs> you do not want to mess with him. And he controls so much of the story in the last few Marvel projects that it's just it's fascinating to see. You know, pretentious point of like, oh, you can cite this story, you can cite this season, I should say, as being, you know, a story about intervention, about like what you should do with that when you see conflict. Like, if you want to go deep into that when it's, you know, this. But um, I did just want to ask the question before we move on. You get to pick one character uh, before we move on to a uh, season two that we that you want to see more of in season two. Whether whether you have the scenario picked out, you would like to see this character explored more. Um, I already have mine. Uh, it's more Natasha. I think you could do variations of that character that are really interesting, especially with the whole Red Rumor thing with Black Widow. And we know they've been wanting to expand into season four. And I'm sorry I stole yours, Sam. I direct message, uh, hate mail to Brandon saying, ah, you stole mine. <laughs> like, I am an evil person. <laughs> no, that was it. Please go on. Oh, no, just for me. Yeah. When, when you asked that question, my immediate thoughts were Natasha, just because of what I mentioned earlier. I, I think that it was really satisfying to see where the watcher placed this Natasha. And it was just it's the timeline we all know, basically, from the movies and uh, talking about how oh this universe lost their Natasha. And it's just something about it that like tugged at my heartstrings. I fell for it. I ate it up. And I was like, oh, this is sweet. So I'd really like to see where she would fall into the next the next season. Also, Noah? I think there's so many 
opportunities to tell a story where Loki is our primary uh, character, only seeing him in Thor as an only child or only, you know, remembering him from there. Uh, I'd love to see, even as a frost giant, like show me what Loki's life was as a frost giant. But uh, if they, if they had a whole episode surrounded, surrounding Loki, I think that'd be something I appreciate. I also thought of another one, just so I'm not completely copying Brandon's homework. I would really love to see uh, Shuri um, in an episode too, because I feel like they could have done a lot more with her. Um, ever since I discovered her from the MCU, I've absolutely adored her character. So it's just like, you know, I feel like they underutilized her in this series and I'm hoping that they'll do more with her, especially cause she teased in and out of a few different episodes. Um, especially that finale when it looked like she was about to attack Killmonger and then he wasn't there. So I don't know. I'd like to see her do something, um, something else in the second season. I think we're going to see a lot more Wakanda in season two, just might be personally. Uh, we're going to move on then to Dope Sick. Uh, this is the newest uh, TV series from Hulu. We've been talking about a couple of who we're going to get to only murders in a bit. Don't worry. If you know all your murder podcasts, we're going to get to that. Um, we also talked about why last man, we're going to wrap up that season in just a couple of weeks. This is Dope Sick. Uh, this is from Danny Strong, who probably most of you know best have been working on the, um, on the last 200 games projects. He's worked on a bunch of other things as well. This is based on the novel, uh, Dope Sick Dealer. Doctors and the Drug Company That Addicted America. I can't believe I made it through that title. From uh, Beth Macy, it stars Michael Keaton as a doctor in the Midwest. He is treating patients for pain, particularly uh, loggers and miners who have really, you know, physically demanding jobs. He, uh, one of his patients is Caitlin Deaver's character, who is this young closeted uh, miner, as we find out. She's in a very religious family. That's not the only plot line, though. We also have Michael Stubar, who plays uh, Richard Sackler of the Sackler family, who essentially has these, you know, grandiose ambitions of creating, you know, this pill that can eradicate pain from the world. And so he creates, you know, Oxycontin with, you know, sacral resources. And we see that plot line of him and his family, kind of a succession type thing of, you know, business intrigue. We also see Will Poulter as a salesperson under Sackler's division who goes out to sell Oxycontin to particularly rural communities such as Michael Keaton and Kitley Devers. And finally, we also follow uh, two lawyers played by uh, Peter Skarsgård and uh, John Hugenacher, who are with the FBI, I should say, trying to track down this, essentially this explosion of Oxycontin in the Midwest and the um, and in the uh, rural parts of the U.S. with a DEA agent played by Rosario Dawson, who has tried this before and has seemingly found you know roadblocks upon roadblocks because of this. It all ties together about this massive opioidemic that is a real thing in the U.S. and has been happening for the last you know two decades or so, and this kind of tied together story of you know the people on top, the people at the bottom, and everywhere in between. Uh, Noah, you watched the first episode. Um, I don't believe you. Did you watch all three? Uh, no, I did not. And okay. we are just talking the pilot episode today. This will be right. primarily a conversation about uh, between Sam and Brandon. I'm sorry. I only watched about half of that episode. But what I can share is that it's very reminiscent of uh, HBO's uh, Chernobyl, mean, meaning that it's like, uh, so you're being brought behind the scenes of the conversations that decide ultimately like, people's fate and their addiction in America. I think just getting a glimpse of that and having it feel so real, like this, I think the script is like amazing. It shines, but it's a show that I will go back and finish. Um, I did not get to explore too much of Keaton's character um, in the, in the first half of that first episode, but just laying the land or, or laying the foundation for what the show is going to achieve. Um, I I'm, I'm already like, you know, I, I'm going to be paying attention to it because I do like, uh, these uh, these stories that tell you uh, really what motions were made or, or what decisions were made that ultimately affected thousands of like millions of lives. Uh, 
And then that's my little spiel. You know, I, I can't wait to move forward with this series. I think it's one that we'll be paying attention to, um, as new, as new episodes drop. So with that being said, uh, yeah, that's kind of my one note. Sam, how about you? So yeah, I honestly, uh, with Dope Thick, I, didn't even know that it was going to be a show until um, our lovely host, Brandon, put it onto the doc. So I'm really happy that he did. Uh, it's just a really stacked cast, honestly. I, I didn't really expect to see like Michael Keaton, Rosario Dawson, and um, so many other people, Will Poulter, as we keep bringing it up, um, and Caitlin De- Deaver. But I, it's funny because I still don't know how I really feel about it. I am midway through episode three. That's where I'm at right now. And so... I'm still kind of having a problem with the story structure. For me, I find it so hard to keep track of when we're in the past and when we're in the future. And it's like they make it very clear with the timeline jump what year it is. But for me, I also like knowing how much time is elapsed from point A to point B in 1996, for example. Like I'd like to know how how many months might have passed, how many days And to me, it's kind of unclear how long some of these things have been going on in each timeline. And for me, I just feel like I get dizzy trying to figure out which timeline we're in and how much time has elapsed. So for me, I'm not a huge fan of the story structure, but then I think the acting is pretty solid. You know, I think that Michael Keaton's phenomenal in this. I mean, he's always good in anything he does. And this is exactly the kind of project he would do. Something that's based off of a true story. There's some kind of corruption behind it. This is a very Michael Keaton movie. So um, I think I think that's fair. It's solid. And I, um, I can't wait to see more of it. Um, I was not incredibly aware of the opioid crisis until actually last week tonight, which I bring up because actually on one of his specials, Michael Keaton plays Richard Sackler in there. So it all kind of, you know, ties into there as a fun little tidbit. How um, full circle. <laughs> how, yes, how full circle. Um, and Michael Stuhlbarg, who plays Sackler in this, is nothing less than a Bond villain. Like he plays with this kind of like coying, whispery nature. And you you kind of get the vibe at first of just like, what are you you're, like? You're hamming this up when it shouldn't be hammy. And then there's a point around, I found like episode, like the start of episode three, so to speak. And you kind of get the sense of, oh no, this is just who he is. He is so drowned out by his own ambition and this weird like cult of personality around the Sacklers that that's just who he is and who he feels he needs to be for this. Um, also impressed, Caitlin Deaver, who is going to break my heart in this show. I know it right now. I'm going to cry by the time this ends. Her character is so sympathetic and wonderful, and she plays it great. I, I'm happy to see her get more, you know, media and developed roles from this. And Michael Keaton, who I can't remember the last time I saw him. I saw him on TV, aside from that last week tonight thing, but he works in this. He totally does. He has this kind of, you know, Midwestern kindness to him that, you know, is kind of nice. Will Poulter, who has this real nice conflict to him, again, going to show, like, the depth that he can bring as a performer. Overall, I agree with you about the structure. It's weird, it's not very consistent unless you're, you know, unless you're familiar with, you know, the general structure of the opioid crisis. I don't think it quite works. For me, I was so invested in the story that I didn't mind if it, you know, jumped from 1996 to 1999 to 2005. Like, it's jumpy and it doesn't quite work. But I was so enthralled by everything else that it worked for me. And like The Last Duel, you will leave it with a sense of rage. Like, this is a show to bring up proper outrage about really terrible injustices by people driven by profits who don't care about the people at the bottom, who insist they do. And the show keeps bringing it up of just like, oh yeah, insist that, you know, it's a cause for this or that it's, you know, a cure for this. And it's like, no, that's not what it is. That's like your weird twisted mentality around it. And the more the show dived into that, I was fascinated by it beyond, you know, the everything else. 
I, I don't agree with the Peter Starzo thing. I think he's doing a fine job. He's one of the weakest links here, but I can certainly see why he deemed this cast in a certain vein. But yeah, this is good. I wish they were shorter than an hour per episode because I binged them all last night. It took a long time. But you know what? It, this is really good. I, I can't wait to see more from this. Yeah, and that was actually a good point about like the the run times because there it's such a heavy topic and for an hour it does take a little bit out of you. But I mean it's it's a central topic. Um and I'm I'm glad that they're making something on it. Totally. Uh so I I assume all three of us are giving thumbs up. Yeah, yep. yeah, thumbs up here. Perfect. And if we get to the you know full season in a couple of weeks, we'll give her full rating then. But Dopesick is streaming on Hulu. It is week by week basis. Uh go check it out if you get the chance. So sick. Sick. <laughs> oh god <laughs> lead us into the next thing please um so i guess that leaves only murders uh for our next segment here so we're going to review only murders um episodes seven through nine and i i think i'd like to take a moment to just kind of ask you all um what were your favorite moments out of the three episodes like was there something that really stood out to you that you just you can't wait to talk about at this moment well, you had actually, you had actually told me a while ago, like, oh, oh, you need to watch episode seven because of, you know, the perspective that it's told from. And yeah, it's really good. Like from a structure point of view, it's maybe my favorite episode solely from that. Um, I love the developments that it gives to, you know, the Theo character, to Teddy, you know, the things like that. But as far as just favorite pure moment, I will then turn it over to Noah, the ending of episode nine, where I called it. And I was so happy that I called it. But Noah, over to you. Episode seven, a, uh, a, an episode that is silent, um, but speaks volumes, as they say. Uh, yeah, uh. That, that, that was a perfect episode. Um, and, and also just playing the, it, it was, it's the episode that really, not the entire curtain, but it, you know, it pulls a layer of the curtain away so that we understand more of the story, um, and the characters' relationships to each other. But I think the steal for me is Amy Ryan and seeing her join, like, the troop that is running the podcast, uh, all these new fans and partners um, in the room now with the original trio, uh, Brazos, Oliver, and Mabel. Um, I love, uh, and I'm saying the actress's name, but what I'm really talking about is the character of Jan, the bassoonist. Uh, her addition, and every time, you know, she has her lines, I, I'm laughing hysterically. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll go into more detail about what these, what goes down in these episodes. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was my moment. Sam, what's yours? Yeah, for me, uh, Brandon kind of teased it. I, I think I saw episode seven a little bit before um, the rest of the crew here, and I was just raving about it. And I was raving to my boyfriend about it. So I'm like, oh my gosh, you got to see episode seven. And I actually replayed it for him, even though he hasn't watched any of the prior episodes. <laughs> and so I was just like, you have to see it. I, I couldn't stop talking about it. Um, but yeah, the structure of the entire thing was phenomenal to see it from Theo's point of view, who is um, deaf slash hard of hearing. And so the way that they laced a lot of creativity into the other roles for the, or the other scenes, excuse me, for the characters who aren't deaf or hard of hearing, because it, it made sense. Like they were sneaking around, so they want to be quiet. And so they're just emoting. And I think that's great. That's creative. And then the whole date scene with the Scrabble boards too, creative. Like I just, I loved it. I couldn't get over it. And I, yeah, I couldn't get enough, but I'm, I'm still sticking. Jan Sus, I, I said it from the beginning. And after seeing those episodes, I'm like sticking with, okay, something's up here. I don't know how involved she is, but this is really sus. Yeah. Who read the Scrabble board? 
who read those I, words on the Scrabble board? <laughs> I almost, I almost missed it until Yum popped up, and I was like, "Oh, you're doing this." <laughs> as soon as there was a shot of an overhead shot of the Scrabble board, I go, oh, "Let me, let me read these words." And so I, of course, read them, and they're yummy. <laughs> it's, it's so flirty and sexual between Jan and Brazos. It's, it's perfect. It's hilarious. I love how they point out the age difference because that was my big thing of like, I love them, but they're like 20 years apart from each other. And then, you know, Jane Lynch comes in and is like, aren't you guys like a little young for each other? I'm like, yes. Thank you so much, Brandon, for bringing up Jane Lynch because that's what else I wanted to mention. Jane Lynch is so good in this role. <laughs> she plays um, Brazos' stunt double from the past when he was part of the show. And uh, it's funny because I didn't think, you know, if you think of these actors separately, I, I didn't think their builds were really that similar, but they do a pretty good job with costume design and everything to really make it look like Jane Lynch is Steve Martin's stunt double from when he was in Brazos. So she is so funny too because the two of them really have great chemistry as well that i did not expect and i think she just really enhances the episode that she's in so i can't wait to see more of her in this finale i wonder if she'll have anything to do with the murders in my opinion i highly doubt it but you know we'll we'll see what happens if she's more involved than we think uh, Brazos even mentions that she was also the more popular uh, actor or stunt double person on set. Everybody talked to her over him. And just just that fact alone, uh, that character, the stunt double, has also uh, taken some lovers from Brazos. It's, it's hilarious. Um, and yeah, that episode is perfect. I, and regarding the Jane Lynch thing, not only does it come out of nowhere, and I do think she's involved in some way, like they make the point to be like, oh, you know, she comes back every once in a while, but it hasn't been for, you know, a little while up to this point. And then we get the Jan thing and I'm like, ah, there's something there. I don't know. Um, maybe I'm just pretty paranoid. But I do love that line that that, uh, that Saz brings up in the dinner room scene where it's just like, I studied your mannerisms, you know, your inflections, everything. And I never understood why you think so little of yourself. And I'm like, that is a perfect line for for Charles as a character because up till this point, you thought that with the him and um, and Jan dynamic, maybe Charles would come out of his spunk a little bit, and it still hasn't happened. You know, even I get it. There's you know bumps in there, but you know they're clearly loving towards one another, and you think that Charles would kind of elevate himself to a point with that, and yet no, he still remains you know dangerously humble. As and you know in that sense, like I'm kind of shocked that that's the thing that we have to point that out a bit more. But it was a great line. I like that they've included now Oscar more as like a main character. Uh, oh. he, yeah, I think Oscar's a great addition. Um, he plays off of Maybell, of course. Like they have they have a relationship, so they're e- they're easily um, they can easily play off of each other. But uh, so seven, eight, and nine, they really told us that um, Tim Kono, you know, the victim in all of this, his employer has a hand, a heavy hand in um, the events that led up to his death. But it's revealed by the end of episode nine that actually they were. They were not even uh, they were not even in the building when Tim Kono was shot. So that leads us to believe that there still is like breadcrumbs to follow. But with only one episode left, what are we what's going to go on here, team? Who's the killer? There's also the point that Oliver's dog was poisoned, too. So, you know, it just seems like poison's playing a bigger role than we would have thought in earlier episodes, too. First of all, I love that lobby scene for that exact reason, because even if Howard isn't the murderer, and I still think there's a chance that he is, even if he isn't, they play it to such a degree of like, we know it's episode nine. We know you think what's going on. You don't have a clue. You don't have a clue, do you? It could totally be him. I, I don't have too much else to share on this on this uh, for season one. I think that the finale is going to the show has shown us only re- repeated examples that it is it, it remains creative even in its final episodes uh keeps you guessing um the so the, the original 
it's so, so funny. The original trio still have their, um, have their chemistry that works so well. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have huge expectations for the finale other than, you know, I've enjoyed this show so much so far that I'll be happy with, with whatever they think, uh, whatever they end up giving us for the wrap. Hear me out. I have my conspiracy thing and my actual thing. My conspiracy thing is if Poison is coming into play, you know who we haven't seen in a while? Sting. Oh, I did true. that. I did that thing. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> I regret nothing. Um, my actual theory is that I think there was probably an affair between Jan and Tim. Somewhere along the lines, Howard got involved in that. Maybe it was a threesome type thing. Maybe you just you know found out what was going on and I think there's going to be something tied into that. I don't think it's going to be, you know, like the, the fans. I don't think that's kind of a red herring. I don't think, you know, Nathan Lane's character is going to be brought back in that much. I think it's going to be very much, you know, a Tim and Jan type thing. That's a hot take. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly don't know where it's going to go. I, I'm still sus of Jan. I, I don't know what's going on there. It could be something as simple as maybe they had an affair and that's the suspicious part. But I don't know. For her, I'm just a little suspicious because then why would she lie about being chair too? I, I don't know. Like, what's your motive behind doing that? So I feel like she has a really big role in what's been going on in the building, but but we shall see. We are going to move on from that back into films. This week, our directorial debut once again. This week, we are taking a look uh, somewhat in honor of DC fandom, a uh, prime member of the combo community, Kevin Smith and his 1994 debut, Clerks. Uh, this revolves around clerks, essentially, at a local convenience store in New Jersey, uh, played by Jeff Anderson and Brian O'Halloran. You have Dante, played by O'Halloran. You have uh, Randall, played by uh, by Jeff Anderson. They're kind of slackers. One of them works at more of the convenience, uh, the convenience store side of things. One works at the uh, video store directly next to it. And it essentially tells the events of a day. You get to meet uh, Dante's girlfriend, who he's been having troubles with, along with, you know, a, a potential love interest that he's been on and off with for the last number of years. Uh, who he doesn't have a good time with learning that she might be engaged. There's a whole plot point with that. Um, he has to play a hockey game that day, as he keeps saying he is not supposed to be there that day. He has to fill in for his dead-end boss who couldn't make it that day. We find out why later. It's kind of hilarious. And we just sort of meet them and the customers and sort of the mundanity of, you know, a, a convenience store shift in the course of a day. Uh, no, I want to go to you first. What was your experience with Kevin Smith prior to this? I know there is one, but I want to know like a little bit more, whether it's films or again, like, you know, his whole like comic book persona and everything like that. And what did you think of Clerks uh, overall? Um, you mentioned comic book persona and it, and it recalls like this video I watched of Kevin Smith at a podium talking to us about like, I think maybe there's like a script somewhere that he wrote for a Superman film. Does that recall anything for you, Brandon? Superman Lives. Go, go watch uh, The Death of Superman Lives. It's a fantastic documentary by the late John Schnepp. It'll explain everything. Okay, thank you so much. Because I, I knew that uh, I did have some history with this director. Um, even even with this movie, Clerks, it's a movie that uh, my mom has mentioned to me that she enjoyed uh, whenever it came out. And, you know, she wanted to, she always had the question to me, like, have you ever watched Clerks? And I'd always respond, nope. And then she's like, you need to watch it. And so it, I knew going into this, that it was one of those movies that uh, my mom like was fond of or something. And so my own personal history with Kevin's not personal. I don't know him. Um, <laughs> history with his work is the movie Tusk, <laughs> the movie Tusk. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Look it up. This, uh, this, it's very, it's not human centipede at all, but it's kind of human centipede in the sense that this person kidnaps another and transforms him into like a human walrus. And it's 
an experience that I would not wish upon my enemies. Um, my grandma recommended that movie to me and she's like my horror, like companion. She's always like, check out this new horror movie. She doesn't even talk like that. Um, but anyways, she, uh, she told me to watch Tusk and I did and gotta say, did enter this with like, well, maybe I'll like his first project. I didn't like clerks all that much. Um, so I'm going to give you a couple of my points. Um, for one, I think the acting is very straightforward. Like it felt very, it just felt very like kind of disgruntled at times. Um, I wasn't sure of like with the script, like were we just looking at different moments of conversation between people who just surrounded like this little convenience store. Um, I, I did admire like some of the moments that we got, like I thought they were a little funny, uh, but most of the humor relies on like crude sexual humor um, that I don't like find funny there was a funny beat in the make in the beginning where there's like a, a gum salesman who's there advocating for the sale of his gum uh, to get to wean people off of their nicotine addiction uh, with cigarettes. Uh, but really is he just pushing his own sales? Like it's, it's kind of uh, weird, but it turns into this whole moment. And that's what this movie offers is it's like these portions of a conversation where they have a conversation about the empire strikes back versus return of the Jedi, which being a star Wars fan, like I loved that conversation. Um, but other times where you're just like looking at uh, the main character uh, discuss his relationship with his partner and the whole time, I'm just like, Oh my gosh, like I, I, it's hard for me to put into words right now, but um, it doesn't really give us something to follow beat to beat. It's kind of just, you know, bits. Um, it seems like he wants to tell more about the uh, like where you can direct your life, like responsibility, but then it can kind of feel like nonsensical. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you're thinking, Sam. Yeah. For me with clerks, I, I I'm not a fan of it. And to be honest, I'm not a fan of Kevin Smith's work before seeing the directorial debut. So um, I was excited though. I came in with an open mind. Cause I'm like, look, I haven't really had the chance to take a look at his stuff. I've only seen like clips of things just to be kind of in the know, honestly, maybe I was tired that day or something, but I fell asleep in the middle of watching it and I had to go back and rewatch the last 20 minutes. So I was almost there, um, but I, I personally wasn't a huge fan of this movie, kind of similar to Noah's point where I, this kind of sense of humor isn't really mine, like crude sense of humor. That That's something I was never a fan of. And so this movie really relies heavily on it. And to be honest, I know that it's like this cult classic for a lot of people. And I, I just wasn't seeing it. I was like, I don't know how this did well, because to me, the acting's really bad. It almost feels like someone has a cue card in the background and people are reading it. I, and I don't know. I just, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling that specifically. Um, there were a couple times I did laugh out loud. I thought the moment when they were talking about how the one girlfriend was sleeping with 37 different men. And then he talked to a random customer and was like, can you believe this? And, and he was like 37 in a row. And you know exactly what I'm talking about if you've seen that movie. But I thought that was like the funniest part of the entire movie. And I laughed out loud, but then otherwise everything else. So that was okay. Um, so for me, it's, it's really not one of my favorites that we've seen so far in the series, but I'm, I'm glad I saw it. Yeah, and funnily enough, this actually ties back to someone who we've actually talked about before, which is Spike Lee. Uh, Kevin Smith has gone on record in saying that this was heavily inspired by uh, by She's Got to Have It, as well as Richard Linklater and a lot of shoestring budget directors of you know the time. And I'll stand up for this a little bit. Um, I know that from the Kevin Smith fans that I've talked to, and I should preface that I don't know if I am because I watched Mallrats a little while ago when it came on Facebook for free. Long story, and 
I was not the biggest fan of it. I thought it was fine. Um, you know, I know Ben Affleck is, you know, Ben Affleck in it, but I didn't find that much else to talk about. Um, but I did actually like Jane Silent Bob uh, Strike Back. I actually think it's pretty funny. But other than that, I'm not familiar with his movies at all. I love him as a personality. I could watch him talk about movies and his projects for hours on end. He is an incredibly effective communicator. And I, I genuinely believe he loves the entertainment industry and loves film as a media. As a director, I don't know. Because the thing with this movie is that it is so mundane. It's so unbelievably mundane. And it tries to elevate it. Kudos to David Klein, the uh, cinematographer, who I think the funniest moments come from how he frames certain things. Like there's a, there's a follow-up moment where um, I think early on in the film where they're talking about annoying customers and it's, you know, Dante is talking about his annoying customers and Randall has the same annoying customers, which is different problems. I thought that was really funny how they framed it. It's just like, do you guys have any new movies? It pans back and it's just, you know, a giant wall of new movies. Like, and then there's a scene later on where, you know, they're playing hockey in the roof. It's like, no one's coming to the store right now. Pan back to you know, a bunch of kids banging on the wall. Like, Things like that, I think, are funny. I will attest to, you know, Noah's point about the gum salesman. I don't take, you know, Nazi humor all that lightly, and I do not like that joke at all, and I will just leave it at that. Um, but I don't necessarily blame that on Smith. I blame that on more, you know, the kind of Tony trying to go for with that. But again, it is mundane. It is to the point. I kind of enjoyed it for what it was for a while, but after a while, I found myself just going get on with it, make something nicer, make something more interesting. Because again, these characters are meant to kind of, you know, fall into their own faults, so to speak. And by the end of it, you're left to kind of assume that they will just keep doing that eventually and eventually and going to Noah's point, that idea of, you know, growing up and maturing. I felt that was a really cynical ending. I know that there's a couple, there are a number of Smith fans who will defend the ending. I don't. I think it kind of ruins the premise of the movie, so to speak. Again, while I love Kevin Smith as a performer, I love him as a, you know, an entertainer. This was not totally my thing, but I will, I'll probably have the highest score here. Yeah. And then I think with that, I'm good to go with the scores too, because um, to Brandon's point, thank you also for bringing up about his personality too, because I actually do really appreciate Kevin Smith as a personality too. I always love any of the interviews that he leads during like comic cons and things like that. I think they're insanely fun when he's behind it. And so, um, yeah, I like him as a personality, but I think in terms of a director, I, I don't know if it's kind of my, my vibe. Um, and I think I would give this like a two out of 10 because, you know, to be fair to it, I'm trashing it myself. And I think it's cause it just wasn't my cup of tea, but I, I could appreciate it for what it was because it meant a lot for people who think it's a cult classic. I think you had to be the right age to see that movie where you're kind of coming of age in the middle of adulthood and adolescence and like still figuring out who you are and you maybe don't have much motivation to do anything at the moment. You kind of plateau. And I feel like if you really connected with those characters to be, you know, uh, you know, objective on this, that Kevin Smith uh, did a really great job of representing that kind of point in someone's life so i would say to be fair it's a two out of ten but it's also not really my thing i'll go next i'm giving it a three out of ten uh the the mention of spike lee's influence uh you know this film this is filmed in black and white um who knows if this uh because i obviously i I didn't see it when it was new at the time uh but who knows if this was like taking on new uh new risks for the medium of film um there there is there is a lot of like Oh, and then this character says something to the camera. And then this character says something to the camera. And so um, stylistic in that sense, but yeah, not a lot to attach uh, to this. And I, I was looking at his IMDb page, Kevin Smith, and there is a Clerks 3 like yes. filming right now uh, that sees some of these characters return. So we're going to see uh, them again in Clerks 3. 
Um, I believe in Clerks too. I was reading that they go and work at a restaurant or something like that. And it has Rosario Dawson. So early mentioned earlier on the pod, maybe I'll check that one out, see if it redeems it. But this is of course, Kevin Smith's first work. Like there is later work that um, we won't hold. So crucially, I mean, I will, if it's Tusk, but um, for a first project, yeah, this is a three out of 10 for me. Um, I've definitely for sure enjoyed other projects more. Uh, this is a very moderate five for me. This is easily the most directorial debutiest of all the directorial debuts that we've done so far. It is shoestring. It is barely 90 minutes. It has basically no idea where it's going. And yet I kind of reveled in it for a while with where it was going with it. I did enjoy some of the characters. I did enjoy some of the jokes. I wish there were more stakes. I wish that it flowed better. But you know what? For what it is, I see what it's going for and I appreciate it to a degree. So if there are Kevin Smith fans out there, but again, I'm with you to a certain degree. I think he is, I think he does have a lot of creativity, but this is not quite there. And that'll do it for episode nine for Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning in as usual. Listen, while we've got you here, don't go away just yet. Go, go ahead and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Plot Devices Pod. You'll get updates on all of our, uh, on all of our podcasts and shows and things like that. And if you want to subscribe to the show, go and follow us. Spotify and Apple Podcasts uh, at Plot Devices. That's Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices. Go follow us there. I want to thank my two hosts for today. Uh, Noah Guzman. Noah, where are you today? And uh, where can people find you? Thank you, Brandon. Um, I'm always available on Twitter uh, at Noah's Plotting. And uh, in this next week, I'll be working on seeing the Antlers movie. And I can't wait to talk about that next pod. Uh, there's always something in the works here. And I'm happy October is filled with so much horror. Uh, and then uh, we'll be listening. Uh, I'll be listening out, of course, for Sam's reviews next week. Sam, go ahead and let us know what you're going to be reviewing next week. I first of all, I can't wait to hear about your antlers stuff, um, just because I think the premise looks interesting, but I won't see it because I am a wimp. Uh, but having said that, this wimp was actually able to see last night in Soho. And that was surprisingly scarier than I thought it would be, to be honest. But I enjoyed it. And we'll we'll talk more about it later. So coming up, uh, up the pipeline last night in Soho, I'm also going to be seeing French Dispatch. So that'll be really fun. Um, and then it'll be, uh, it'll be a good time. So you could find me on Twitter at S underscore Incrivaya or on Instagram at Sam, I am So I am available at both of those places. And of course here at plot devices. So I'm excited for what's to come. And you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the movie King 45. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram as well. And as for reviews, I have my last dual review coming out this week. I may have a Dune 1984 review coming out. I was working on it, but that's because next week, baby, Dune Denis Villeneuve. It's finally happening. I get to see it and I get to review it. It's, I, I have only high hopes for it and I hope it's amazing. Um, and also stay tuned to our podcast feed. We have a bit of a special surprise. Uh, if any of you are DC fans for the recent uh, DC fandom news as, as far as this is going up, you might want to tune into that and you might be wondering why we didn't talk about it. Go, go listen. To it. Just check out the podcast at Plot Devices, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. With that being said, for myself, from Sam and Corvaya, from Noah Guzman, this is in Block Devices, and we will catch you guys next time.